Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Our text today is going to be verse 41 through verse 52. And we'll read that passage together here in just a moment. In a message entitled, A Surrendered Life, as we continue in our series, Conform to the Image of Jesus. That's the subject that we've been considering in recent weeks, along with the theme verse of the series being Romans 8, 29. And we're thinking about the subject of spiritual formation, the process of our being conformed to the image of Jesus for the glory of God, for our good, and for the blessing of others. It is God's plan for your life and for my life that we grow to be like Jesus. And a central part of that is living a surrendered life. The idea of surrender uh, originated in part as a military term. There's a difference between conditional surrender and unconditional surrender. Conditional surrender being described as surrender that is safe and predictable, controlled and on our terms. Unconditional surrender being described as freedom, reliance on someone else, and totally letting go. Now, as we think about what it means to live a surrendered life and to be conformed to the image of Jesus, we're thinking about our lives going in a particular direction and the testimony that we give. What is the story of our lives and how will we be remembered? Everybody will be remembered in some way. And it's important as Christians that we be remembered in the right way because we've lived our lives surrendered to Christ. Born in England, the life of William Booth was a, a remarkable one. He became known as the prophet to the poor. You might know him because he was the founder of the Salvation Army in 1865. He came up with an elaborate social relief system because he believed that it would advance the gospel and that it would speed up the work of evangelism. That was his initial purpose. William Booth was once asked what the secret of his success was. He paused and he thought for a moment and tears came to his eyes. And he said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I have. There have been people with greater opportunities than I have had. But the day that I got the poor on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do with them, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth. It was this statement that led Wilbur Chapman, who was asking the question initially, to remark, I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. Jesus is the pinnacle of what it means to live a surrendered life. As the Son of God, he lived his life on earth from the beginning in surrender to the will of God the Father. And it was freely and without conditions that he was obedient to the purpose that he came to earth for. So we're going to learn in these few moments that we have together today about surrender from the only 
story in the Gospels about Jesus that takes place between his infancy and his public ministry as a man. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, says, Every year his parents traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom of the festival. After those days were over, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But his parents did not know it. Assuming he was in the traveling party, they went a day's journey. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all those who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked them. Didn't you know that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. Now verse 51. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. Joseph and Mary had gone to Jerusalem. They went every year at the feast of the Passover. And when Jesus was 12 years old, we learn about this particular event where they went up according to the custom and when the feast was over as they were returning, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it. They thought that he was with them and with their probably rather large traveling party with friends and family. So they went on a day's journey. It would not be difficult to lose track of someone in a large group of followers and, and uh, people who were uh, traveling like that. But at some point, they realized that he wasn't with them, and they began to look for him among their extended family and friends. Not finding him, they decide they're going to go back to Jerusalem, and they're going to look for him. After three days of probably what amounted to some fairly frantic searching, uh, they found him in the temple. He's sitting there with the teachers. He's listening. He's asking questions. He, and all who hear him are amazed at both his understanding and his answers. Twelve-year-old Jesus was discussing God's word with them, and he was amazing those who were listening to him with his understanding and his answers. Somebody said when we realize the impressive intellectual insight and education that the Jewish rabbis would have had, we realize just how impressive this particular exchange was. This is something akin to a middle school child discussing physics with a rocket scientist. That's the level with which he was engaging. So his mother questions him and tells him that they've been looking for him anxiously. Jesus replies, verse 49, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? One translation says, did you not know that I had to be about my father's business? The first recorded words of Jesus in this passage 
are significant. These words are significant because he was communicating something to them about his identity and also about his purpose. The statement of Jesus is a statement of surrender. It's a statement of submitting himself to do the business of the Father, to do the will of God, to follow after the plan of the triune God for which he had come to earth. He would grow up in Nazareth. He would mature through his boyhood and grow into adulthood. He would be subject to his parents as he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. But it would be a life that would be marked out by surrender. So what I'm going to do in the next few minutes is consider three areas of focus in a surrendered life. Some things that we can draw from the life of Jesus that bring application to our own lives and help us live in a way that we can honor God and ultimately be remembered for the glory of God because we've given our lives for him and for his glory. First of all, a surrendered life seeks to do the will of God. Jesus stated the purpose of the mission that he came from heaven to accomplish on several occasions. He would do so later in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. But I think about the passage in John chapter 6 and in verse 35 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. After he said that, in verse 38, he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, verse 39, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The purpose of the mission that Jesus came from heaven to earth to accomplish was to save and then to keep all that the Father had given him. And he identified himself as the bread of life, being the one and the only one who can eternally satisfy. So it's important to understand that eternal life is offered to all, but not all will believe. But all who do believe, who come to Jesus by faith, will be saved and will be kept for eternity. So when we believe, we are trusting in the one who perfectly kept the will of the Father. And in following after the one who perfectly kept the will of the Father, we also are seeking to do the will of God. I love this quote from Elizabeth Elliot, the Christian missionary and then author and speaker. She said, the will of God is not something you add to your life. It's a course you choose. You either line yourself up with the Son of God or you capitulate to the principle which governs the rest of the world. We want to line ourselves up with the will of God. There's another example in Scripture where we learn just how important it is to do the will of God. Uh, when uh, the earthly mother and brothers of Jesus came looking for him, he was, as he always was, serving and ministering. And in Mark chapter 3, 
There's a story told of his family members coming to look for him at a certain point in his ministry. They could not get to him because of the uh, crowds that were outside of the house. And they sent word to Jesus that they were trying to get to him. And he took an opportunity to teach a very important lesson. And he said in Mark chapter 3 and verse 33, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around, Jesus said, Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. We do not do the will of God so that we can become part of the family of God. Because we are part of the family of God through faith in Jesus, we demonstrate that we belong to him by doing his will. God's will is knowable to us because God has revealed his word to us. Psalm 143 and verse 10 says, teach me to do your will for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. So the psalmist was saying to God, the Father, I want to know your will. Teach me to do it. And as you teach me to do it, empower me by your spirit to be able to do it. And this is the same prayer that we pray today. It's a simple prayer of surrender to God because we want to know his will. He's told us his will and his word. So we're asking for guidance, and we're depending on his power to bring it about. And God's will is discernible to us by being transformed through the word and then by the renewing of our minds. That's what Romans 12 and verse 2 indicates, that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Why? So that we might discern what is the good and perfect and pleasing will of God. Now, obviously, there's some practicality to this, right? God gives us some freedom within this understanding of his will. He gives us freedom to decide where we're going to live and what kind of vocation we're going to pursue and what kind of relationships we're going to have and uh, who we're going to marry and a lot of different things in life that are part of the free will that God gives us. But here's the beauty of it. If we are seeking to know his will through his word and by his spirit, then as we draw closer to him, he gives us the desires of our heart because the desires of our heart become his desires. We are lined up with him because we're seeking the same thing that he wants for us. And then as we're making these decisions and we're acting on the ability to make these choices in life, there's a lot of choices in life that we make, more and more we're aligning with him so that we can follow after his will. And as a part of the family of God, we have the blessing of being able to share in what Christ did. And what Christ did was he was obedient to the will of the Father. A surrendered life seeks to do the will of God. Second, a surrendered life desires to give glory to God. When we think about glory in the Bible, glory is the essence of the nature of God. We give glory to God when we acknowledge the essence of his nature in worship. The word glory in the Old Testament means greatness of splendor. In the New Testament, 
the word glory means dignity, honor, praise, and worship. So when you put those together then, to give glory to God is to recognize his splendor and to worship him because he's worthy. And Jesus in his life on the earth surrendered his life in order to give glory to God. John chapter 8 in verse 28 says, So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. Jesus surrendered his life in the authority of the Father. And he was lifted up on the cross for the sins of the world. The lifting up on the cross was a necessary step to exaltation. This is Jesus who is the I am. This is Jesus who did what pleased the Father. And this is Jesus who was never abandoned by the Father. As he lived in the center of the will of God for the glory of God. And in what we know as the high priestly prayer, uh, Jesus prayed to the Father. In John 17, it said Jesus spoke these things and he looked up to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. You've given him authority over all people so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Philip Melanchthon, the reformer, wrote, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer that was offered up to the Father by the Son of God himself. Now, don't make a mistake here and think that somehow the prayer of the Son to the Father is an inferior praying to a superior that's not what the scripture is teaching. This is the Son of God speaking to the Father, voicing the eternal purpose of the triune God. And this prayer is deep with relationship. This prayer pulls the curtain back just a little bit on what the relationship is between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, who are co equal and co eternal. And we find some insight here into Jesus praying for the Father, first of all, to glorify the Son. Now watch this. The Son can only glorify the Father if the Father first answers the prayer of the Son, glorify your Son. What was it that would glorify the Son? It was the cross that would glorify the Son. In the cross, God the Father was glorified because he would display his sovereignty over evil. He would display his love for sinners. He would display the victory that was won in the redemption that Jesus secured. And it was all for the glory of our great God. Now I understand that the word glory is a sort of strange word for us in the modern age. In some ways it might seem just a little bit archaic. We don't use the word a whole lot other than in uh, church uh, circumstances a lot of times, Bible discussions. 
But I like what C.S. Lewis wrote in his essay, The Weight of Glory. I share this with you in part. He said, I turn to the idea of glory. There's no getting away from the fact that this idea is very prominent in the New Testament and in early Christian writings. Salvation is constantly associated with palms and crowns and white robes and thrones and splendor and things like the sun and the stars. And then he writes this, all this makes no immediate appeal to me at all. And in that respect, I fancy that I am a typical modern. Glory suggests two ideas to me, of which one seems wicked and the other seems ridiculous. Either glory means to me fame or it means luminosity. As for the first, since to be famous means to be better known than other people, the desire for fame appears to me as a competitive passion and therefore of hell rather than of heaven. As for the second, who wishes to become a kind of living electric light bulb? The purpose of our lives is to glorify God and shine as lights in the world. Jesus was light that came into the darkness. And he said to us, you are the light of the world. So if we are the light of the world, then part of our living as the light of the world is to illuminate him, to shine glory on him. To give to him what is due to him. But then this thought comes to mind. If God has all the glory, and he does, and if God is worthy of all the glory, and he is, how then do we give glory to the one who already possesses it to begin with? How do we fulfill this Desire that's in our hearts to bring glory to him. Well, First Chronicles 16 and verse 28 and 29 says this. Ascribe to the Lord, families of the peoples, and ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So we're told, first of all, that we are to ascribe glory to God. To ascribe means to attribute something to someone. So we're giving to God what he already has and what he alone deserves. And we essentially are recognizing the glory that he eternally possesses. And we're ascribing it to him. We're recognizing it. When we ascribe that glory to him, we are also bringing the offering of our lives to God and we're giving him the very best that we have in order to see his will carried out. So we're not giving God the the reserve, we're giving God the very best. We're surrendering it all to him. And as we ascribe recognizing what belongs to him, we surrender ourselves to him, then we worship him in the splendor of his holiness. And a surrendered life desires to give glory to God. This is part of what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And then third, a surrendered life is willing to suffer for God. This being the most unpleasant of the three, but yet still being a reality of what it means to live in a sin-fallen world. One of the great questions that always arises is 
Why is there such evil as there is? Why is there so much brokenness and pain in the world? Why do we see all of this darkness and the heaviness of it all as we do? The biblical answer, which is not an oversimplification, it is the reality of the situation, is that we still live in a sin-fallen world. We are on our way to that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. But in the meantime, we've been left here for a purpose, and that purpose is to be the light of the world as we represent Jesus Christ, to share the hope with those who are yet in darkness, and to see God's work of redemption in individual lives, and then to see it all come together collectively when we are in his presence in heaven. And living a life that is genuinely surrendered to God is not easy. It's never been promised to be easy. I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane as he was facing the cross. He knew full well the price that he was going to pay. He knew the situation that was approaching. He knew the heaviness of it all. And he prayed. There in the garden, surrounded by ancient olive trees. Gethsemane meaning literally the olive press. The olives were pressed for their oil. And so too the Son of God would be pressed And the Son of God would suffer on our behalf. And the Bible says that his soul was sorrowful even unto death because he knew what the cross would require of him. And so he prayed in Matthew 26 and verse 39. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. But then he said this, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus referred to was the cup of judgment, the cup of the wrath of God that was laid on him that he would endure for us for our sins. The one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And this cup that he was about to drink from was the cup of judgment and the cup of wrath that he did not deserve, we deserved it. So it was the sinless one preparing to die for the sinners. And when we look in the Old Testament, there are examples of this where the cup is referenced as the cup of the fury of the Lord, the cup of the judgment of God, and a reminder to us of the magnitude of what took place ultimately in the Messiah at Calvary. Jesus drank the cup at Calvary, but I want you to note this. He surrendered to drink that cup, ultimately in eternity past, but in the moment recorded in Scripture, he surrendered to drink that cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was willing to do it for us. And I want you to think about it this way. For each of us, there is a point of surrender when we come by faith to follow Jesus. That's the moment of your salvation. When you turn from your sins, you repent, and you by faith believe in Jesus, and you surrender your life to him. But also recognize that there are points in life where maybe God is calling us uh, to a new way to serve him or calling us simply to obey a commandment in the scripture or he's calling us to do something uh, that is going to bring difficulty into our lives. 
And we've got to be in a place of surrender to be able to say yes to God. Did you know we always ought to lead with yes, Lord, in our relationship with him? That ought to be how our hearts are focused and where our affections are, that we say yes. So I say to you that this is a one-time surrender, but it is also a daily and ongoing surrender for us. Jesus said if anyone wants to come after him and follow him, then let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's what Jesus said. And our flesh desires an easy, consumer-oriented, convenient faith. That's what we desire. We want it easy. We, we don't want to be challenged. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to endure hardship. We don't want to have to persevere. A lot of people just want to be able to add Jesus to their lives and everything's okay because if there's a crisis, they have someone they can pray to. They're going to go to heaven someday and they know it's a nice place and, and they want to go there. But they don't give a lot of thought to what it means to actually surrender. And I say to you, if that's the situation in your life where you're living a, a faith of convenience, friend, you are missing out on so much. You're missing out on the blessings. You're missing out on finding what God's purpose is for your life. And it's in the place of surrender that blessing is to be found. There was an article in the New York Times that appeared at in December of just this past year. It's entitled, Arrests, Beatings, and Prayers Inside the Persecution of India's Christians. India is a place of freedom, and in certain places in the country, uh, the persecution is not significant, but in other places, it is quite intense. This article states, in church after church, the very act of worship has become dangerous despite constitutional protections for freedom of religion. The end of the article focuses on Pastor Patil, who refuses to stop witnessing for Jesus, but has to operate, at least in some ways, like a secret agent. Here's what the article says. He leaves his house quietly and never in a group. He jumps on a small Honda motorbike and putters past little towns and scratchy wheat fields, Bible tucked inside his jacket. He constantly checks his mirrors to make sure he's not tailed. Extremists have warned Pastor Patil that they will kill him if they catch him preaching. So last year, he shut down the Living Hope Church, which he said used to have 400 members, and he shifted to small clandestine services, usually at night. One cold night this past winter, Pastor Patil drove to a secret prayer session in an unmarked farmhouse. He quickly stepped inside, and on a dusty carpet that smelled like sheep, two dozen church members waited for him. Most of them were lower caste farmers. When a dog barked outside, one woman whipped her head around and asked, what is that? Pastor Patil reassured the woman that God was watching over them. He cracked open his weathered Hindi language Bible and rested his finger on Luke 21, an apt passage for his beleaguered flock. 
They will seize you and persecute you, he read with his voice trembling. They will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. And Pastor Patil says, you get this energy just thinking about his name. And the journalist concluded the article by stating this. They believe deeply in the teachings of Jesus. I want you to let that sink in just for a moment. They believe deeply in the teachings of Jesus. Church, do we believe deeply in the teachings of Jesus? Does it stir us to be willing to suffer and to endure if that's what's required of us? A surrendered life is willing to suffer for God. And I believe that God will not shape our lives until we surrender to him no matter what the cost is. And the reason that we do this is because we recognize what is truly valuable and what is truly lasting. You understand people in the world, they're just grasping at the wind. They're, they're just trying to hold on to things that don't last. They're not eternal. They're not with a spiritual purpose. They're not for the glory of God. And many of these things, even as believers that we hang on to, they're, they're not bad things. Some of them are good things, but they're not eternal things. And we've got to come to the place in our lives where we understand what is truly valuable and lasting. And the reason that Jesus accomplished the will of the Father was because he understood the purpose that he came for and he had full confidence in the outcome. In church, we need to do the same. And surrendering to God requires faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I want to make this very practical as I come toward a close. What is it that you need to surrender to God? Do you need to surrender the illusion of control in your life? Some of us try to chart our own course and we got it all figured out. We've got it all marked down. Do you know you can control the direction by a lot of the decisions that you make and you can still be outside of the will of God? If you trust him, however, you will find purpose in the center of his will and your will and his will will align. Do you need to surrender the weight of worry about the future? Some people lose a lot of energy worrying about the future. They're bogged down in it all the time. Maybe you got a situation right now and you don't know what you're going to do. You don't know what the answer is. Turn it over to the Lord. He'll help you have the wisdom that you need. Your future is in his hands. Do you need to surrender the resources that he's entrusted to you? Do you understand that everything that you have has come from God? Life itself has come from God. The ability to do things has come from God. The resources that you have to steward, those things have come from God. Surrender those things to him. Do you need to surrender your relationships? Maybe you're going through a difficult time right now in your family. It might be a marriage relationship. It might be a parent-child. It might be a child-parent. It might be a brother-sister. Whatever that difficulty is, you're struggling with it. You've got to surrender it. It might not be solved immediately. It might not be solved ever on this side of eternity. 
But if you'll surrender it to God, he'll help you with it. Young person, do you need to surrender your future to the Lord for what he has for you? Here's what I want to encourage you in. I want to encourage you to surrender all that you are and all that you have and all that you hope to be to your heavenly father. And you know why I want you to do that? Because he can be trusted. He can be trusted. Turn it over to him. He can be trusted. He's not going to leave you. He's with you. He's going to help you. He loves you. And if you believe that, you can live with a sense of peace that you're not going to find anywhere else. And you can say, I surrender all. Judson Van Deventer lived from 1855 to 1939. He was raised on a farm in Michigan. And after graduating college, he taught art in schools in Pennsylvania. He was very active in his church, and people began to take notice, and he was particularly active in revivals and evangelism. And based on his fervent faith, uh, his friends encouraged him to leave teaching and become an evangelist. It took him five years. Some of us are a little slower than others. But he finally surrendered. And he went on to write more than 60 hymns. But the best known of his hymns is I Surrender All. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence, daily live. I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. That's the anthem of the Christian life. That's where it's to be found, in surrender. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. How has God directed your heart this morning in our time together through his word? As we've looked to Jesus Maybe you've been reminded about what real surrender is all about. And there may be one of those areas that I mentioned that you need to turn over to the Lord. This is an invitation right now as we pray for you to say, Father God, I, I don't have the answer. But I believe that you can be trusted. And because I believe that you can be trusted... I'm going to give this over to you. What do you need to lay on the altar today and say, Lord, it's yours. I can't do it, but I know you can help me. So I'm coming today in faith. For some of you, it may be a first-time step of faith. You've never been saved. You've not been born again. You don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, but he's inviting you to trust in him today, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Maybe you're a seasoned believer. You've been walking with the Lord for a long time. But you've been trying to carry a burden lately by yourself. And Jesus is saying, that's not your burden to carry alone. I'm here with you. I care about you. I'll help you. Would you entrust it to him? God, there are a lot of needs represented in a place like this.
as we've gathered today. We're here because we are people of faith. We're here because we believe we need you. I pray that that would not just be a truth that we believe in our heads, but it would be a reality that reaches deep to our hearts and controls the direction of our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life for us and for showing us what genuine surrender is all about. And I pray now as we come to a close of this service today that whatever the decisions that are that need to be made, the steps of faith that need to be taken, that people would lead with yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. We're here and we believe in you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.